going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. I've ranted a lot about how we in Calgary need something to rally behind, some piece of infrastructure to be proud of. Is the Event Centre and BMO Centre expansion that thing? We'll chat with Ward 1 Councillor Ward Sutherland about that. We'll also get into the new K-4 curriculum rejig with Education Minister David Egan. A Christmas-like tour of our city. There is a map for that. And we'll finish up the show talking about French fries on Friday. Let's start things off with something that I thought was going to be making more hay on the Friday free-for-all, and nobody talked about it. The new arena slash event center making the news this morning. Possibilities for that new arena in Victoria Park being discussed at a city hall committee today. It'll be discussed again on Monday at city council. It includes $500 million expansion of the BMO Center. It also includes a $550 million event center. Big deal. Something we can get all behind? Maybe. Ward 1 City Councilor Ward Sutherland is certainly hoping so. He joins us on the program now. Ward, thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. When you think about that district as a whole, is that where we're thinking about putting our eggs here? Is this is going to be the hub in a sense? Yeah, this has been a multi-year uh, research. We've done tons of engagement. Our CMLC division uh, has done extensive reports. We've had three consultant reports now on top of it, besides numerous open houses, etc. This is the place to be as the Rivers District in the future. What do you see as being the next add-on, I guess, or what, what does the $500 million for BMO Centre expansion entail? What, what is it going to look like when it's all done? Well, we have a total master plan, so you can actually go online from CMLC and see it. But uh, basically, uh, Monday is going to be a critical next step vote for council. Uh, as uh, people might not know, that the community revitalization levy uh, extension of 20 years, the uh, provincial government has now passed it and made it law. So it's a great funding mechanism that we use for the East Village that we can continue for the river's district. So uh, some of that funding will be used for the BMO expansion. And what that's going to do is make it a tier one convention center. And people are asking me, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, what it means is there's uh, 11 to 15 conventions that we turn down a year because we're just too small. We get to build a whole bunch of more hotels to support it and generate an additional minimum $75 million a year. So we're talking about $275 million a year into Calgary businesses, 500 more additional permanent jobs. So it's a really exciting uh, anchor to this whole entertainment and cultural district. How much of a buy-in are you hearing when it comes to the private sector? Because you're going to need a little bit of that, whether it be hotels and and restaurants, that kind of thing that are are going to be needed to make this an actual hub beyond just a, a, a center for conventions and that kind of thing. That's a great question. Well, the answer is they're actually waiting. They're waiting for the announcements and the commitment. As soon as that happens, it's going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars. And between the two concepts, it's it's not only the convention center, but also the event center. They would be the two anchors of the whole area that would generate hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of private investment, but also, more importantly to the city, generating those taxes. 
and uh, that, you know, that pays for the bills and gets everything done. And creating a, a whole festival space, everything for Calgary uh, that uh, will happen over the next few years, hopefully. You mentioned the two words that I've kind of not railed on, but I've certainly seen play out before. Is this project with the, the event center has changed with a couple of words, and it is event center. When did it change from arena to event center? Well, it's it, Joe, it's all about vision. And when we got the committee together with uh, Def, uh, Jeff Davison is the chair, uh, we talked about is this has to be about the whole vision. It, it, it's not a hockey arena, and I, we want to get away from that. Some people might call that, but you know what? Hockey is getting played there 44 days a year. This, this, the design of it, the outside is just as important as the inside because that's where we're going to hold festivals, etc., all across Calgary that they can come and do on a regular basis and use it for the other, you know, 200 and something days. And that's where you get resident participation. And it's completely different. So the Flames organization, you know what, they'd be a partner within this whole scope of a vision. It's a fascinating one, and to give you a little bit of context on it, is I saw this play out in Medicine Hat the same way when they were building a Canalta Center. Is they had a, needed to replace a 45-year-old building, and originally everybody was talking about an arena, and suddenly new committee rolls in and says, hey, we need to change the vernacular to event center. And so when I saw that play out in the last few months, I went, all right, I see where this is going. And to your point is, for this to be a money-making venture for all involved, particularly the city, you need to have it filled more than just the hockey dates. You need other events that it can kind of rally around. Absolutely, and we need to fill up outside of the event center, and that's just as critical. So in the plan of the uh, Entertainment and Cultural District, that alleyway with all the restaurants, the hotels, the different businesses, we could, for example, the stuff we normally have on Princess Island, we can now move everything to this district that can handle the transportation that's built for people to move, that has the built-in technology uh, uh, to give the best festivals possible, that doesn't have noise complaints, because the way it's going to be designed, all that type of stuff in the gathering place, it's, it's thinking for the future long term for Calgary. I was going to ask about that with the connectivity part is I know at one point and, and I haven't seen the this part of the this concept yet, but at one point there was some thought about how there's that natural divide between, say, 17th Avenue or, you know, the downtown core because of train tracks. And I'm wondering, what is the connectivity going to be like? Is it does this open the door to maybe moving that part of the LRT completely underground again? What are we looking at there? So part of the River District is actually all about the connectivity, and that's what we're going to use the CRL money for, the 17th Avenue, the new Green Line, a new station. We want to make it all interactive so it's easy to move back and forth. There's not uh, issues with traffic. So the overall concept and design is built to be that way, and that's why it's so critical that this uh, CRL occurred because that will create the opportunity and the funds to make sure that all that connectivity occurs throughout the whole district. How important is it for you to have this project that Calgarians can get behind, especially in, in I know in, in the last few days, especially after the Olympic decision, I said, you know, the city needs something to, to get behind, to rally behind. Is this that project in your eyes? 
In mine, I, I think it is. It's, you know, people are asking for vision. Well, here's our vision. And it, it didn't just suddenly come. We've been discussing this. The teams have been working on it for the last few years, especially uh, uh, the R- Rivers District. It all makes sense and all the different funding sources are coming together um, obviously you know we want support for Calgarians we also want to educate and advocate that they really understand the whole district and the vision and that uh, you know it's an event center and uh, it's more than just one function and that's really critical because all Calgarians can benefit from this what do you think the spin-offs will be from a project like this should council say yep this is the vision uh, the research is showing it's in the uh, uh, hundreds of millions. In fact, over a 10-year period, it gets into the billions. And we're talking about private investment money, not government money. So it's a it's a game changer, and it's a long-term future that uh, you know will create permanent jobs, construction jobs, etc. And uh, but also it, that's the name of the district is uh, entertainment and culture. Uh, district, which we don't have in the city of Calgary, with 1.3 million people, uh, it's due. It's over. It's overdue. Ward, I appreciate the time as always, and uh, looking forward to seeing what council has to say uh, on Monday. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Let's get right into it. We've heard in the news all day the new K-4 curriculum is ready to get field tested. Minister of Education David Egan now joining us. Minister, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on. Why is today monumental, I guess, in, in your eyes? Well, today we um, have just signed off on the new curriculum for kindergarten to grade four so that it can be starting with field testing here in the new year. So it's been a two-year process of uh, thousands of people working together to build something that's stronger, stronger on basic skills, stronger on expectations for kids, and um, I think a a curriculum that we can be proud of for 21st century learning. What kind of expectations do you have when it comes to those basic skills and those learnings? Well, um, this new curriculum has definite expectations around basic skills in mathematics. For example, it introduces fractions earlier. It uh, redoubles down on times tables and so forth. And uh, having the mastery internalization of basic mathematical understanding so that you could move on to more complex uh, complex concepts later in terms of language arts. It's uh, reading and writing to make sure that kids are demonstrating literacy by the end of grade four and then having strong expectations of uh, development each step of the way. So, so I mean, by just laying it on the line and making sure that we move across different subject areas to always focus back on those basic skills, I think is going to serve this new curriculum really, really well. Uh, I'll, leave, I'll stick with the math idea for a second here. And one of the things that seems to be getting lost in the shuffle is that they're almost, I don't want to say too advanced in a sense, but they're, they seem to be, by the time they're hitting grade three, grade four, they're behind because they weren't getting the concepts originally. So how do you keep the kids uh, engaged but also clicking along in the grade, you know, in kindergarten, grade one, grade two, so that they're not falling too far behind come grade three, four, and beyond? Well, that's a very good question. And, you know, the key to a good curriculum is that you're making good investments in education, too. And our government has, right from the beginning, has, even during an economic downturn, invested in um, making sure we have enrollment. 
We have teachers in the classrooms. We have uh, extra, you know, education assistants. And now with a clear expectation of the curriculum to guide us, I believe that we will see a lot more success in basic skills so that kids don't get lost behind. Because if you don't have that skill, you move to the next grade, you get lost. You get lost more than once, and uh, the kid's having trouble for the rest of their school year. So I know myself as a teacher and a parent that, uh, you know, we needed to sharpen this considerably. And I'm super proud of the results we have here for K-4 curriculum. Is there more of an onus on teachers or is there an onus on parents? Where does the onus fall for those kids who are having troubles earlier on that, you know, that you managed to get them those basic skills early on? Well, you know, this is a disconnect that we saw before as well. Um, you know, with the previous government, they were not, you know, um, it was like they were teaching something that the parents couldn't help out with, right? And so, you know, we're really pulling it back to make sure that we're using a common universal sense of mathematics, for example, that everybody knows. Um, you know, and again, with literacy, reading and writing, to make sure that, um, again, we're having clear communication through the curriculum of what expectations are every step of the way so there's no ambiguity you know we don't have a kid coming out of uh, junior or elementary school not being able to read and write you know and so a combination of investments in education redoubling down building new schools hiring those teachers and having a really sharp curriculum to uh, to uh, front the whole operation how do you manage, I guess one thing, it's one thing to have a curriculum that's in place that you can, you can stand behind, but when you have classrooms that are bursting at the seams again, how do you maintain that? How do you convince teachers, for example, to say, hey, you're going to be able to do this even though they've got classes of 27, 28, 32 kids? Yeah, that's right. I mean, no curriculum is going to be successful unless teachers are supported through uh, professional development. <clears throat> and um, and as you say, bringing down the class sizes uh, wherever we possibly can. So uh, I'm aware of that. Um, nothing exists in isolation. And um, I'm, I'm really sensing the optimism that's coming with building this new curriculum, K-4. We're on to 5 and to 9 here next. But um, if it's not supported um, and if it's not communicated clearly to parents, then um, you end up uh, running into uh, problems. When you say that the pilot project that'll be rolled out in the new year is going to be closely monitored, what exactly are you going to be monitoring? Well, looking for any innovation or changes <clears throat> that um, that teachers seem to need on the ground. I think it's really important to monitor content to make sure that we're getting those support materials into teachers' hands and, uh, you know, model lesson plans and so forth. The, one of the beautiful things about this new curriculum is that it is uh, on a digital platform in both official languages and it is uh, interactive. So we literally can use the curriculum platform as a way by which to share best, best practices and we will fire that up straight away with uh, the field testing and uh, people can be creative and when teachers are creative you are um, appealing to their professionalism and the quality just shoots up every time. As I read through some of the the curriculum and that and granted I wasn't able to go completely in depth as much as I wanted to but one of the key themes that I really took away from some of it was uh, there's a real emphasis here on First Nations, Inuit, that kind of thing across the spectrum whether it's not just in social studies but also in uh, I saw it in English I, or language arts and I also saw it in, in even uh, arts and, and drama that kind of thing. Why the emphasis there? 
Well, um, it's important to, we have signed on to all of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, to realize the shared history um, between um, all people that live in this province. And so um, I think it's um, about time, quite frankly. You know, we talk about, we're definitely strengthening history in this curriculum on at every grade level. And part of that strength is to learn about the full spectrum of not just First Nations, Métis, and Inuit culture, but um, also immigrant culture to the history of all of us being really, you know, coming from somewhere else at some point and uh, making sure kids can see themselves in the curriculum and be proud of that. I'm sure we could go on for a while on a bunch of different topics here, but unfortunately out of time already. We'll have to have you back on to talk a, a little bit more about this in the new year. Uh, Minister David Egan, thanks so much for the time today. You bet. Thank you and uh, Merry Christmas. Over the course of next week in particular, and also heading into, uh, we will have a show for you on Christmas Eve, and then we'll be back the 27th and 28th, is we're going to spread some holiday cheer. We're going to do a lot of Christmas talk because it is, of course, Christmas time. But one of the things that I always loved as as a kid, one of the things that my parents always did was, uh, even in the small town, because everybody did it, was they put up their Christmas lights. And so we did the little drive through uh, town and t- took a look at all of the Christmas lights and ood and odd and that kind of thing. And I know a lot of people here in Calgary do the very same thing. And one of the things that I wanted to do was see if there's a map out there. And there happens to be one. It, all you got to do is head up to lightenupcalgary.ca and the person behind that is Sylvana Stacer. Sylvana, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm happy to be there. Thank you. Lightenupcalgary.ca is the place to go if you want to find out where there are great light displays here in Calgary. Sylvana, first off, when did you guys start this? Um, we started with Lighten Up just two years ago. So there was uh, another website, uh, lightenupcalgary.com, before, uh, but uh, the person who managed that, uh, yeah, stopped doing it, and we pretty much took over with a new website. What was the hope when you guys uh, first launched it? Was it just to kind of create a map of where all the best places were, or take pictures, or what did? You, what was the hope and aspiration behind it? So, yeah, we just wanted to make sure that uh, people can submit their pictures and so that families, uh, when they drive around around Christmas time, that they can look at all those amazing displays. How difficult or how challenging is it to come up with uh, the map and everything and, and put it all together in a, in a nice little package like you have? Well, that was not difficult at all. So we do web design ourselves. That's our company. So that was pretty easy for us to do the the technical stuff. Right. And from that point, I guess it's been uh, for a couple of years now up, up, <clears throat> up and running. How uh, how has the response been? Uh, very good, actually. Yeah, we have thousands of visitors on the website every year. I can only imagine. Everybody's looking yeah. to spread a little bit of cheer. I suppose. What's well, uh, Absolutely. What is what does it mean to you to be able to uh, to do exactly that to spread a little Christmas cheer? Uh, it, it means a lot because we love Christmas and obviously so, and uh, we just like to keep an old tradition alive. And uh, and also we want to help and support people in need with our donations. Right. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that next, actually. So you segued really well. There is an a-, a donation aspect of this as well as you're trying to give back to the community while also informing them as well. Give it, uh, Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so everybody uh, who signs up on our website has the opportunity also uh, to let people know which uh, uh, which organization they support. Um, so it's not about lighting up, it's about every individual person who can do that. And um, so we have, with that being said, we have different organizations we, we support. So we have the Food Bank, we have uh, people who support the Heart and Stroke Foundation, um, the Mustard Seed, Brown Bag for Kids, Veterans Food Bank, Angel Trees. So there's a lot. Mm-hmm. When you look back on the last couple of years here, any any uh, pictures or any locations that you've been able to check out that really stick out in your mind as being just, uh, I don't want to call it over the top, but just phenomenal in terms of the Christmas spirit? Oh, there are quite a few, but it's, it's always it's different for everybody, right? So uh, all the displays are amazing, and no matter if they are big or small, so it's all the how to spread the joy. Absolutely. Lightenupcalgary.ca is the place to go if you want to check out where you need to go to uh, check out some of the, the great displays for Christmas in and around Calgary. Sylvana, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just going to apologize now for this, but I got to get it out of the way. All right, that's enough. Oh, I've man, had enough. I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> now, it is Friday, but as it turns out, uh, board operator extraordinaire Matt Air joining us. Uh, and he, it's Friday, but it's also Fry-yay, Fry-yay. I think. So, I love it. And Fry is spelt with an Y at the end. And Matt, why don't you give us a little bit of the background here on the story that you <laughs> shed some light on us uh, on Wednesday, because this is hilarious. So the ever-diligent worker that I am, I happened to come across a story, and at first I thought it was a joke. It turns out, though, that Eric Rim, a professor in the Departments of Ep- Epidemiology and Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, called potatoes starch bombs and said that the most fries that a person should have in one sitting is six. The, the, we have scientists who are spending time and imagination deciding how many fries is the optimal number of fries in one sitting. But it's six. <laughs> Can you imagine going to like get going to McDonald's or wherever you want to get your fast food and be like, yeah, I, I want a, uh, a burger and six fries. I don't want seven. Don't shortchange me and give me four. I want six. Now, the best part is, and this comes out of the article from the Washington Post. uh, It says, if you take a potato, remove its skin where at least some nutrients are found, cut it, deep fry the pieces in oil, and top it all off with salt, cheese, chili, gravy, whatever you put on top. The good stuff. That starch bomb, once again using the term starch bomb because I love that, can be turned into a weapon of dietary destruction. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what I love about some journalists and reporters and even scientists for that matter is that they can get into the funny language that way and they can be pretty creative and that's that's got to be ranking right up there in the creative Creativity. Dietary destruction. <laughs> A <laughs> weapon year. of dietary mass destruction. <laughs> well, the crazy thing about this whole study, too, is uh, 
I couldn't help but do a little bit of research myself. And I, I decided to look to see how much the average, because most studies are done for Americans. I don't, right. I, I don't know with Canadians with the amount of poutine we eat, but the average American eats a hundred and forty two pounds of potatoes a year or almost 365 potatoes per person. So that's an average of a potato a day. Okay, so if you did the math on that, how many fries does that equal in a day? Oh my goodness, I don't. Oh. Like how, I guess it depends on, it depends, on whether it's a crinkle string. And you know, shoestring fries. Well, and this brought us into another very important topic. Mm-hmm. And we might have to save this for next Friday. <laughs> Where do you get the best fries? Ooh, I like that. That's a good question. Yeah. Text us your best answers. Maybe maybe before maybe when Dave McIver's doing sports, I'll just interject with random factoids. Well, best fries in Calgary. Text us 403-974-8255. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.